put yourself in Paul Theroux's place. A man on the shady side of middle age like me gets off a bus at a border. Who on earth could you be? You're not George Clooney. You're a bum. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, Paul Theroux describes what it was like to return to Malawi in Central Africa 40 years after teaching English there with the Peace Corps. Frugal traveler Seth Kugel tells us what he found when he picked a small town at random to get away from the usual touristy parts of Mexico. 2,000 people living an old-fashioned lifestyle and pretty happy doing it the way they were doing, and, and they were very generous in letting me be a part of it. It's one of my best travel memories ever. And Neil Taylor explains how the newfound energy in the Baltic countries is contagious. Color has come back. The grey atmosphere that there was, say, in Soviet times, has gone completely. And that's why they can be so welcoming to tourists. Three accomplished travelers take us off the beaten path, coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Travelers can connect with people in the most unlikely places. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, Paul Theroux explains how his best-selling book, Dark Star Safari, came about when he decided to rough it, regardless of his age, on a return visit to Central Africa. His mission? To see what had changed in 40 years. He joins us a little later in the hour. Neil Taylor knows the Baltics like a local. He'll share the highlights of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania 20 years into their post-communist world. Let's start out with Seth Kugel, traveling off the usual tourism grid in Oaxaca, Mexico. Seth writes the Frugal Traveler column for the New York Times. And you can send us your questions, comments, and travel reports by email. We're at radio at ricksteves.com. Seth Kugel was sent on a 13-week mission across Latin America to enjoy himself on $500 a week, and part of that adventure was getting off the tourist grid in Mexico. Seth joins us now to give us an insight into traveling where there's absolutely no tourism, to just immerse yourself in a little no-name village with no tourist information, nothing great or famous to see, and just become a temporary local. Seth, thanks for joining us. Hey, no problem. Pleasure to be here. You know, when people think of Mexico, they think of pyramids or Cancun or Mazatlan or the colonial circle, and you did exactly the opposite. Well, they also think of tacos, right? And there were tacos in this little town. But my idea was um, I had been traveling for, you know, seven or eight weeks by this point through Latin America, and I just was frustrated with always running into the little sticker on the side of the restaurant that said this place was reviewed by Fromers or running into that gaggle of backpackers wherever I thought I was in a new place that only I was discovering. So when I got to Mexico, a country I've been in a lot before and feel comfortable in, I decided, hey, okay, I'm just going to find a little town, as little as possible. I'm going to pick it off the map. I'm just going to go there. I'm going to have no idea where I'm going to sleep. I'm just going to get in and I'm going to figure it out and stay there for a week. And that's exactly what I did. Where did you go? The place was called San Juan Tetipac, but it wasn't actually the place I originally intended to go. I had picked out a spot on a map, I had hopped on a public bus, and I had just asked the, the driver, am I on the right bus to X town? And he said, uh, yeah, but why are you going there? And I actually told him, well, I'm just looking for a town to hang out in. And he said, why don't you go to my town? Yeah. And I said, where's your town? He's like, it's on the way there. And I said, hmm, okay. I said, is there a place to sleep in your town? And he said, well, you could probably find a place to stay with a family or something. Is there anything to do in your town? And he said, well, there's a nice old church, and you can go walk around the mountains that are around the town. And I said, sold. And the guy <laughs> couldn't believe it, really. He, he thought I was joking. But that is the town I ended up going to, San Juan Tetipac. So he dropped me off at the side of the highway. I caught another very, very old bus that took me about... I think about 10 kilometers off the highway down a, a dirt road and ended up in this in this little town. We should stress that you can do this anywhere. This reminds me of a trick I used to do in Turkey where I'd just be in a sizable town. I'd take a bus just any direction. And when I got off, the locals would see a, this American backpacker getting off the bus and they'd all say, excuse me, you must be wrong. Nobody gets off here. You can do that. You can get off there. Exactly. Okay, no normal hotel. Where did you sleep? Uh, I got in, and I just looked for the first person I could find, and it turned out to be this guy named Bernardo who was sweeping the town square. He was the only person visible, and I said, uh, I figured asking for a place to sleep would probably not be the, the right place to start. So I said, where can I eat? And there were no visible restaurants in this town either. So he said, well, you know what you can do? You can go down the street here, and there's a woman who serves lunch to workers who are in from out of town doing a construction project or something like that. So I went to this place, I went in, there was no one there, there was a couple tables set up in this woman's house, 
And I sat down to eat. And while I was sitting down to eat, I said, hey, do you know any place where I could sleep? And it turned out that she did. Years back, a French student had come by doing some sort of a master's project and had rented a room from this old couple. And her idea was, well, if they rented a room to a French student, uh, they'll probably rent a room to an American uh, traveler today. And indeed, they did. So I ended up with a $4 a night bed in the home of a retired farmer and his cheese-making wife. Ah, it's dirt cheap for you, but probably a blessing for them to get $4 hard cash every night. Yeah, they're retired, and the husband is retired, and the and the wife works very, very hard making this cheese every day from the local cows and, and makes this cheese. And sure, I think that not only was it a nice additional income, but I think they had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, their life is a bit of a routine, and, and here comes this guy, and I'm very talkative and uh, <laughs> love to chat and get to know people and, and got to know their farm animals as well, because although they weren't in a rural area, they had... You know, just one of everything it was like an old McDonald's-type situation in their backyard. And I think they, they got a kick out of it. Now, I, I think a prerequisite for this kind of adventure in Mexico would be speaking Spanish. Yes, but I don't think that you need to speak fluent Spanish. Right. On the other hand, think of all the English-speaking countries out there you could do this in. Jamaica, you know, Belize. Belize would be great that way. Sure, all over Africa as well. Again, you just want to make sure that you're not getting yourself into some sort of dangerous area or something right. like that. You didn't have a list of sites to see, so you had to generate activities. Uh, I remember reading uh, that you said you s sort of hoped to find and hire the best cook for a private feast. How did that work out? That's right. Well, the state of Oaxaca, where this was, is famous for its mole, which is the Mexican sauce of many spices that often goes with chicken. So uh, I thought before I went, I'm like, boy, it would be really great to find someone who could was like the best person in this town to make this stuff and, and have them make it for me. I didn't really think it would actually happen, but I did try and asked around, and it turned out that, not surprisingly, that these two women, including the first woman I had met who ran that little sort of semi-restaurant and another woman who ran a sort of a similar operation, were both famous in the town, one for her mole and the other one for this sort of vegetable soup, which was notable for having absolutely no ingredients except for vegetables and yet still being like a, a sort of a hearty meal. And, yeah, I just went to both of them, and I said, hey, I would love for you to make uh, this dish for me. I'm happy to pay you and whatever. And both of them just said, come back tomorrow at X hour, and we'll do it. And they did it. They're probably still talking about you. <laughs> Hopefully in a good way. <laughs> By the way, people can read about this experience on your blog and in your column at New York Times Frugal Traveler? Yeah, it's nytimes.com slash frugal traveler, or just go to nytimes.com and, and put frugal traveler in, in the search, and it'll it'll come right out. You talked about this quirky kind of local radio broadcast, kind of the little nickel or the little little peso of the community. This was one of the most shocking things. It was in that very first little restaurant at lunch that I heard this music playing from somewhere, and I, I said, okay, something's happening in this very quiet town. What is it? And I went outside, and I couldn't figure out where it was coming from. So I went back in and asked the woman cooking. Her name was Teo. I said, Teo, what is that? Where is that coming from? And she said, it's coming from the loudspeaker in the trees. And I looked up, and yes, there was a loudspeaker. And it turns out that this town has a number of competing radio stations, quote-unquote. They're not actually radio stations. There are people with microphones in their house with speakers popped up high in the tree above their house who take payment to make announcements, to play music for people's birthdays. They'll do whatever you want them to do for a few bucks or a few pesos. And uh, I just was fascinated by this. The problem is there's about five or six of them, and if you live in between the two <laughs> wrong trees, you get this conflicting sort of cacophony of music, you know, one kind of music in one ear and one kind of music in the other ear. So It's like a jukebox and like an advertising bulletin? Yeah, you'd hear things like, uh, there's a video online, so people that want to see it can actually hear a little bit, bit of this uh, hmm. on the blog, but they'll make announcements like a lost goat. Uh, you know, has anyone seen this person's uh, horse? Uh, they ran off. <laughs> um, but then also very, very common are two other things. One, when something's something fresh is for sale. So, Juan the baker has just baked a new uh, batch of bread and is selling it on the corner of X and Y streets. Or uh, there's certain days that they kill certain animals. So I, I believe Saturday was pig day. And they would say, oh, okay, Saturday, starting now, you can get fresh pork meat at X person's house.
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're traveling with Seth Kugel, and he writes the Frugal Traveler blog and column at the New York Times. You can read his work at NewYorkTimes.com. And Seth, this is just a bonanza of amazing, fascinating cultural insights in a town with no conventional tourism. A lot of people are concerned about the safety when they're thinking about Mexico. We've got uh, an email from Sarah in Fallbrook, California. And Sarah is like a lot of Americans when she writes... Here in San Diego County, few Americans venture beyond the border because of the escalating violence between the drug cartels and the Mexican military and police. Regardless of the promotions for tourists, in my opinion, Mexico is not a safe place to visit, regardless of where you're traveling there. Seth, what's your take on on this kind of uh, response to the news? Certainly there are parts of Mexico, especially the border, with many parts of the border with the United States that are dangerous to go to these days and, and no one should go to. But overall, I just have to pretty much disagree. It's a completely understandable point of view. You see the news and you think the whole country is like this. But, you know, it'd be like seeing a, a story on violence in New York in the 1970s or something like that and avoiding going to Florida for that reason. There are many, many parts of Mexico that are perfectly safe uh, or at least as safe as, as many parts of the United States. So, again, you just have to be very careful in your research you know, if you're flying there, you're, you're flying over the dangerous spots and, and ending up in a country that's fantastic to visit and has so many things to see. We've been venturing off the tourist grid in Mexico with Seth Kugel. And, and Seth, you were in a town called San Juan Tetipac. But really, this could be any of the countless towns all over uh, Mexico or throughout the world. Let's sum it up with one evocative encounter that you had in Tetipac. Sure. Well, it turns out that this old church that the bus driver had told me about was not just an old church. It was a 16th century monastery, which was being um, refurbished. And so basically I had the first look at a place that might be a, a tourist destination in, who knows, five or 10 years and had it all to myself, basically. It was this stunning old 16th century rundown monastery in a place where I would never have thought to go if I hadn't just picked it off the map or really if the bus driver hadn't taken me to his hometown. One of the things that I left with from the town is that, uh, you know, here's a place that is it's not overly uh, poor, but it's, it's certainly not rich either. And here was just a group of, of 2,000 people living sort of an old-fashioned lifestyle and seemingly, you know, pretty happy doing it the way they were doing. And, and they were very generous in letting me be a part of it for, for about five days. And it's something that I will certainly never forget, one of my best travel memories ever. Seth Kugel, you can read about his adventures at the New York Times. He's the frugal traveler. Check out his blog and column at newyorktimes.com. Seth, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. In a bit, Paul Theroux takes us with him to Central Africa to explain how and why he wrote his best-selling book, Dark Star Safari. Up next, an explosion of creativity has been unleashed in just two decades of post-Soviet independence in Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. If you're planning a trip to the Baltic region there's a good chance you already have a guidebook by Neil Taylor. We're checking in with Neil at his home base in London next for suggestions on tapping into that special Baltic-style energy. We're exploring outside the usual tourist haunts today on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm David Willett from uh, Australia, and I travel with Rick Steves. Boogie boogie. There's a unique energy in the often overlooked northeast corner of Europe that we'll explore right now with Neil Taylor. Neil is a foremost authority on the Baltic region. He edits the British-based guidebooks put out by Brat Guides to Estonia, to Tallinn, and another guidebook on the six major Baltic cities. Neil, thanks for joining us again. 
Good to be with you, Rick. So now, Neil, the six Baltic cities. I mean, when I think of the Baltics, of course, we know uh, Vilnius, Riga, and Tallinn, the three capitals. What are the six Baltic cities? Well, there are the three capitals are very important, but then they each have other cities which tourists should really go to. For instance, in Estonia, there's Tartu, the university city. I rather compare it to sort of the Ivy League university cities in the States or the Oxbridge, Oxford and Cambridge Mm. here in Britain as places that are an easy visit from the main capital. And then in Latvia... It's important to go out to the coast. I mean, Riga, if you can picture the geography, is actually sort of in a bay, but it's worth getting to the real Baltic Sea. And there's Liepaja, a town that was built up by the Germans over the centuries, a major port. And in fact, a lot of Latvian immigrants to the States went from there. It was their last view of their home country before seeking their fortune in the US around 1900. And then if we move down to Lithuania, the second city there is called Kaunas, also has a big university and actually was the capital of Lithuania between 1920 and 1940. The Poles were in occupation in Vilnius at that time, so a sort of older capital in a sense of Lithuania, but now a thriving second city in that country. Now that's interesting. You've got Kalnos being the historic capital of Lithuania, just like Krakow was the historic capital of Poland, and Turku was the historic capital of Finland, and they all got changed. How does a country have to change its capital? I mean, Kaunas is very different in the sense it was a sort of enforced capital. I think it's a bit like Bonn in Western Germany after the Second World War when it wasn't possible to have the German capital in Berlin. Well, it wasn't possible to have the Lithuanian capital in Vilnius because the Poles were occupying it. And in fact, therefore, it was the obvious place to have the temporary capital of Lithuania. The Lithuanians saw it's rather different from, say, Krakow or Turku, which had long centuries of when they were genuine capitals of larger countries. Okay. Now, I get a sense when you're in the Baltic states. uh, When I was in Estonia recently, they said, boy, when you're jammed in between two mighty nations, Russia and Germany, you got a tough road to hoe, and they were perpetually outgunned, and they said, we have to sing just to let people know we exist. How has that impacted the cultures, and then today what we'll see as travelers when we go to these little countries bullied between Germany and Russia? Well, luckily, the legacy is purely architectural now. I could take you around Tallinn, Tartu, similar cities in the other two countries and show you a lot of German buildings, a lot of Russian imperial buildings. And in the last 20 years, of course, there have been buildings from local architects. But you would not sort of think, well, this is Germany or this is Russia anymore. You would see that they are different countries with their different languages. But that's only in the last sort of 20 years because the former powers had such a grip on them. You got the German architecture, then the Russian, then the contemporary. Would the German be mostly from the Hanseatic age? Very much so, yes, because these areas were developed as ports. The goods came from Russia firstly by boat in the last 150 years by train and were exported through the Baltic ports. So Tallinn and Riga, those capitals, very important. And then Liepaja, the town I was mentioning earlier. And then on the Lithuanian coast, what was for many years actually part of Germany, Mamel, but now the port of Klaipeda. When I went to Riga, the capital of Latvia, it struck me that this is a German city. It looks like Lübeck in Germany or something. That's right. I mean, parts of the old town, because it was German architecture, German money that built it up. I mean, it was never a formal German colony, but in a sense, the Germans ran it. And whoever else was in power, the Germans still ran it. Sometimes the Swedes conquered it, the Poles conquered it, the Imperial Russians conquered it, but the Germans actually ran Riga until the First World War. And you get that same feeling in uh, Tallinn, in Estonia. In Tallinn, in Estonia, yes, you do. But but Vilnius uh, seems more wistful and countryside bumpkin kind of run down to me. It's revitalised itself, and it's much more southern, much more, some people might say, laid back, because it is further south, and the architecture is Italian and Spanish, so you don't get the business sense of urgency there that you do in Tallinn and Riga. That's very much the difference there, and it's a Catholic approach to life rather than a Protestant approach to life. Now, that's a good way to distinguish Lithuania from Latvia and Estonia, isn't it? You've got that South Catholic, North Protestant, Germanic, big trading cities in Latvia and Estonia, whereas Lithuania is more rural and small town and less prosperous? Yes, that's right, because the capital was never on the coast. And this town of Klaipeda, which in German times was Maymore, was always a much smaller port than Riga in particular or Tallinn was. So Vilnius between the wars was 
a provincial Polish city. It wasn't a capital, and it had to recover that role of being a capital. Now, when I think of these countries, I just feel like a lot of Americans have a hard time getting their brains around which one to go to. And, and we have these images of the, the Soviet Union and frightened people and downtrodden uh, economies and so on. How have the three great capitals of these countries changed in your mind in, in the last decade? Colour has come back. I mean, this started immediately after 1990. That was when the changes took place, of course, all over Eastern Europe, not only in what are now the Baltic countries. And colour came back immediately and as quickly as possible. So the grey atmosphere that there was, as you say, in Soviet times, has gone completely. And that's why they can be so welcoming to tourists. And you've got the greenery. It's not only that the houses have been repainted, the public buildings repainted, but you've got large public parks too now. And which of the capitals has fared best with capitalism and freedom in the last 20 years? Um, probably Riga, because it lost most in Soviet times. Riga is the biggest capital by far. Its population is now a little under a million. At various stages, it's been a little over a million. The other two have populations of about 400,000. Riga has Zeppelin hangers. Yes, it does. Yes, it has its market now, which were originally Zeppelin hangers, which were to protect the Zeppelins had they been used in the First World War, which they I love. I love that and, market. I can't believe I'm in a Zeppelin hanger. <laughs> but there, going back to what we were saying about colour, I think you've probably seen more changes in that market than anywhere else in Riga. We were talking about architecture, but just look at the range of items on sale there. (laughs) And, of course, the range of people who are buying them. So that isn't a luxury market. It's a very general market where things cost everything from a cent to $100, as it were. You know, all over a former communist world, I feel like it's just a festival of pent-up entrepreneurial spirit as people are embracing the freedom to, to work hard and be creative. It's good times for the Baltics, I guess, when you look at their very difficult 20th century. Very much so. And I mean, culturally, you see this, the range of music, the range of pictures, the furniture or the carpet designs in so many different fields. You see this explosion, the sort of feeling that people couldn't be creative for 40 years. And here we are in the West. I mean, we could be creative for, say, 60 years, assuming we're working between the ages of 20 and doing something until we're 80. So all the people who perhaps were 40, 20 years ago have had to compress into 20 mm. years what they otherwise would have done over 60. It's a heady time. I'm speaking with Neil Taylor. and Neil is a Londoner who spends a lot of his year in the Baltics, and he writes guides for the Brat series to Estonia and to the six great Baltic cities. Neil, you know, when you think about Scandinavia, the Swedes and the Norwegians have this kind of teasing sibling rivalry, and uh, they sort of exaggerate their national traits as they rag on each other. What kind of relationship do the Baltic states have with each other? Similar. So within the Baltics, yes, I mean, the same jokes that the Norwegians (laughs) tell about the Swedes and the Swedes tell about the Norwegians, you have a similar relationship between Estonia and Latvia. Well, Estonia and Latvia are much closer because of this Protestant background than Lithuania is. Lithuania is much more independent from the other two and leans more to southern Europe and to Poland. To Poland. Because it was an empire for many years. So maybe we think of the three Baltics together because of their status within the Soviet Union, but historically... We should really think of the two, Latvia and Estonia, as sister nations, and Lithuania as kind of the the little sister of Poland or something like that. Does that make sense? Yes, well, the Lithuanians wouldn't be happy to use that (laughs) term because they've had struggles with the Poles, but uh, looked at from a sort of U.S. perspective, I can understand that that there are quite a lot of parallels between Lithuania and Poland which don't exist between Estonia and Latvia. That's very true. Greg in San Diego emails us, and Greg writes, As part of Glasnost, I went to the Soviet Union as a high school student. Having just read George Orwell's book, Animal Farm, we lived the reality of the book in Tallinn, where, quote, some pigs are more equal than others, unquote. I made great Estonian friends who visit us here in the United States, and we visit them regularly. How is the rich Estonian choral tradition continuing after the singing revolution? It's a great issue, the, the great choral tradition in Estonia, and in the other countries. What's the status of that today, Neil? Yes, now that is paralleled in all three countries, that they have major song festivals every year, and then 
choral groups. I mean, this unites the generations. One might think, well, it's only the old people who are going to sing. It was the political bond in the Soviet period. But no, people of 20, 25, 30, who, of course, don't remember or hardly remember the Soviet period, they are singing just as much as their parents and their grandparents. And it is a great cultural phenomenon because, of course, it's using their language, they're using music by local composers. So if there's westernisation in the commercial world with the American, the British, the German brands, certainly not in singing or in orchestral music either. And when you go to Latvia especially, I think you have these men's choruses that are just, you can't hardly miss them. No, you can't, no. And they are all round the country. It's often an accusation in the UK that there's too much culture in our big cities and not enough in the smaller ones. Well, singing takes place all over Estonia and all over Latvia and Lithuania. You're quite right in that respect. Now, I know that during the Soviet times, Russia tried to dilute the people of Estonia and I think Latvia and Lithuania by having a lot of Russians settle in those countries. What is the fallout of that today for these countries? What issues are they dealing with because of their Russian minorities? Well, in the case of Latvia, it's only just a minority. I think the Russians are about 45% and the Latvians 55% now. They're parts of the country which are intensely Russian. That applies in both Estonia and in Latvia, towns where Russian is really the major language. Lithuania has far fewer Russians, only about 10% of the population is Russian, so not so much of an issue Mm. there. And they have been trying to integrate them as much as possible. The language issue is a major problem there because the local people feel that the Russians should finally learn Estonian and Latvian, and the Russians, particularly the older ones, have felt, well, we've lived here for a very long time, why should we bother? But the language issue is important because there was the threat that these languages would die out had the Soviet regime continued for another generation or two. They would have said to the young people, well, what is the point of learning these languages for your career? You need Russian if you're going to Leningrad, it was called then, or Moscow or anywhere else. Just forget your local language, put that behind you and learn Russian and use Russian. So it's it's important now that the local languages sort of are respected and that the Russian community gets a working knowledge of either Estonian, Latvian or Lithuanian. I'm Rick Steves. We're talking with Neil Taylor, who writes guidebooks to the Baltic region. Neil, a lot of people go to Scandinavia, and I'm a big fan of them spicing up their Scandinavian experience by taking that fast boat from Finland over to Estonia and Tallinn and then side-tripping down to the other Baltic states. Tell us, just from a practicalities point of view, what are the hoops you have to go through to travel in the Baltics? Well, there aren't hoops now. U.S. passport holders can travel throughout the European Union without visas for any country, and in fact without border controls through most of them. So when you go from Finland to Estonia, nobody's going to ask for a passport. When you go from Estonia to Latvia, perhaps on to Poland or to Germany, nobody's going to ask to see a passport. It's quite extraordinary now. You can go from the north of Finland to the south of Portugal with the same currency, obviously with the same passport, but without actually showing it. So it's very much like perhaps travelling from one state to another in the US. You don't really know necessarily that you've crossed a border. And if somebody had 10 days or so to dedicate to the Baltic region, how would you recommend they spend it? Um, They could certainly spend sort of three to four days in each of the relatively small, of course, Baltic countries. They would then start in Estonia, in Tallinn, go to Tartu, the second city there, go through perhaps the Latvian countryside, which is a little more dramatic than the countryside in Estonia and in Lithuania, but get, of course, to Riga, then cross the border near what's called the Hill of Crosses, a very important Catholic shrine in northern Lithuania, and make their way to Vilnius and fly out from there, perhaps. And it's very easy to fly into one end and out of the other end and connect the cities. Yes, the airlines all allow that. There are no problems or get one-way fares and large sort of international airports in both Tallinn and in Vilnius, so that isn't a problem. Last time I was in Tallinn, I was very impressed by the Occupation Museum telling the story of the Estonian people under the Soviet Union and under the German Nazis. Are there other museums like that now opening up in in, uh, Lithuania and Latvia, now that enough years have gone by so they can deal with these hard truths? 
Uh, yes, they're very moving museums in both Riga and in Vilnius as well, detailing these crimes. So, in a sense, you sometimes think as a holidaymaker, should you go there? But I think you should. You do need to know the history of the last 60 or 70 years. It's like going to Holocaust museums in other places. It's important that you devote a little bit of a holiday time to the political history. And as the years go by, it seems like, you know, now that Grandpa's dead, we can deal with this a little more candidly. And uh, you've got these museums that really are quite probing into the police states and all of these horrors that these people had to live just in the last generation. Yes, that's right. And it's important that next generations appreciate that because there isn't Grandpa to tell the story directly anymore. But what went wrong then, we must know in subsequent generations. That's critical that we learn from that history. Are there warm memories of the communist times that that we can partake in when we're traveling through this region? Not as a traveler. I mean, some of the older people reminisce about the collective approach to life, that the village always got together around the weekly film show and things like that. Well, that doesn't happen now. People are watching their own televisions. They're traveling into town. The youngsters may be working in London. Who knows? It's a more individual society. And some of the older people, as I say, don't like that. I think that's the generation that had the toughest time with the transition was the older generation. Very much so, yes, because life was so predictable beforehand. You knew your entire life what a loaf of bread cost, what a pint of milk cost, and really what your salary was, because it didn't change either. So it was straightforward, but was dull, of course. Yeah. My favourite factoid from my last visit to the Baltics was uh, a local guide told me that the first millionaires in post-communist Estonia were people selling junk metal to Germany, and they were literally dismantling the cage that the Soviets had built to keep these people down. Right, I could imagine that, yes. And there was instant profit in that. Instant profit, and now when they go to their beaches, they sunbathe on the former military installations that kept the people from going out in their fishing boats. Yes, yes, because you couldn't fish in those countries because the risk was, as far as the Soviets were concerned, that the fishing boat would turn up in Sweden or in Finland and not return to Estonia or Latvia. What a brilliant opportunity for people to inject a little bit of reality travel into their next European trip by checking out the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. And when you do it, I think you'll want to be equipped with one of the guidebooks that Neil Taylor writes about this region. Neil, thanks so much for uh, shining a light on the Baltic states. Thank you, Rick. It's been nice talking to you. While border controls have been lifted in most of Europe, in many parts of Africa, they've become even more strict in recent years. Travel writer Paul Theroux tells us what he discovered on his Dark Star Safari through Central Africa. It's up next on Travel with Rick Steves. Any traveler who reads travel books knows Paul Theroux. His classic from 1975, The Great Railway Bazaar, inspired a world of travelers by taking us by train across Asia. Paul Theroux was a Peace Corps volunteer back in the 60s in Malawi, in Africa. Now, 50 years later, he returns and takes us as only Paul Theroux can on a trip the length of Africa, from Egypt to South Africa, in his book called Dark Star Safari. Paul Theroux, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure, Rick. Paul, tell us, what is Dark Star Safari? How did that book come about? It came about uh, very simply with a kind of yearning to go back and see what had happened to my school in the Peace Corps. Forty years, almost 40, after I left the school, uh, Bush School in Malawi, I thought, what happened to the students? What happened to the school? What happened to the country? And then I thought... Well, the country's in the middle of Africa. It's, it's south-central Africa. It's sort of next to Mozambique and near Zambia and Zimbabwe. And I thought, I'd never been to Egypt. What if I went to Egypt, went down the Nile, went to the Sudan, Ethiopia, Kenya, Uganda, uh, Tanzania, Lake Victoria, and then went to Malawi that way, because I'd also worked 
in Uganda. So it, it was a return journey and also a, a visit to places that I had never been. And it was doing what I value most in travel, which is traveling overland, going across borders. So that was the origin of it. I, I went to Cairo and I just headed south. The way you travel to write a book is, to me, the way people should travel just to have a rich experience. You're roughing it. Now, you roughed it as a Peace Corps volunteer back when you were a kid, and now, 47 years later, you rough it again. How can a senior traveler, if you don't mind, we're, we're no longer kids, rough it? What did you wear? What did you pack? Uh, did you have an itinerary? Yes, I had an itinerary. If you're asking me, did I have a travel agent? No, I just knew the cities and the routes that I wanted to go, and I was traveling overland. So you need to know, if you're traveling overland, you need to know, is there a train? Is there a bus? Is there a taxi? Is there a, can you walk? Is there a boat? You really need to know how you're going to travel. But I didn't make any hotel reservations in advance. I had all the time in the world. I remember I left on a particular day and just set off. Traveling and alone? Traveling, you got to travel alone, yeah. I mean, I'm a senior traveler, I suppose. <laughs> I hate to think of myself. It's weird, isn't it? But we're, I mean, uh, you yeah, know, we I did am. the yeah. hippie bus to Asia back in the 70s. That and was uh, a few years uh, ago. But the great thing about being a, an older person, I'm on the shady side of 60, <laughs> a shady side of middle age or something, is you're invisible. No one really cares uh, about older people. They don't look at them. You asked me about what I brought. Old clothes. I don't wear shorts. It's not a good idea to wear shorts or wear a funny hat. You know, when my clothes started to get worn, I would go to the market and just buy a T-shirt or a pair of pants or something or a baseball hat that someone had contributed to their church, probably in Tacoma, thinking that, and they end up in the markets of Zambia and Malawi and Tanzania. And you, you can get them for about 10 cents, 20 cents. People actually sell them. They sell them by the weight in the developing world, don't they? Yeah, they do. You buy a big bundle of shirts or a bundle of hats <laughs> or a big bundle of pants. And they, they sell them cheaply to market traders, and then the traders set them out and sell them. There's no shortage of clothes in Africa. These free clothes, you know, charity clothes, have destroyed the clothing businesses in mm-hmm. Africa. I travel with two bags. One I can you know, carry on my back and a briefcase. And uh, Oh, by the way, at the end of the trip, uh, everything was stolen. My, my back was stolen uh, in Johannesburg at a reasonably good hotel. It was just it was gone. I, I had my briefcase with me that day, so I had my notes. Thank but goodness. I lost all my clothes and a lot of valuables, too. Hmm. But you had your notes with you, or it would have been I had my notes, yeah. And, and I, when I'm traveling, I, when I get to about 20 or 30 pages or sometimes more, I photocopy them and send them to my wife so that I have copies of... That's the most valuable You, you don't thing. input with a laptop? No, no, I don't travel with a laptop. I, I don't travel with anything. Wow, you handwrite your books, Paul Theroux. <laughs> All my books have been written by hand. If you and you read. photocopy them and send the copies home? Yes. Wow. Every book that I have written, every novel, every travel book, every short story, has started with a pen and, and ink on a piece of paper. And I, I could show you, well, the manuscript of, um, of any novel. Say a novel like The Mosquito Coast is probably four or five hundred pages of scribble, scribble, scribble. Mm-hmm. My most recent travel book was called Ghost Train to the Eastern Star. It's a return journey, all written out in longhand. And then I sit, when I have notes, I want to have, well, it's not really notes, it's a book. I sit down and then I type it on my laptop. I don't travel with a laptop. It's, that's, that's really courting disaster if you have a, a laptop. So I didn't bring any electronic things. Okay. Now you say, you say that you are prey in Africa. What do you mean by that? Well, I think anyone who looks different is prey. I mean, anyone who's different is prey, whether you're in Seattle or, or um, St. Louis or London or whatever. If you're, if you're different, you're, you're preyed upon. But um, you could buy yourself out of that risk and so on, but you choose not to in order to get good material? By buying myself out of the risk, you mean just travel in luxury? Yeah. Yes, but then if you travel in luxury, I mean, what's the great book about Deauville or what's the great book about Monaco? I, I, there really is um, there's nothing in it for me. I've traveled luxuriously, or I've traveled well. This past summer, I, went, I took two trips. I went back to Africa and went into some of the Dark Star Safari area in Zambia. I was on a safari with my wife, and we were staying in very nice hotels. We rode elephants in Botswana. We were at Olaru Lodge in Masai Mara. Had a great time. Nothing to write about. <laughs> nothing to write great about. Great vacation. Nothing to write about. I, uh, I took a, a luxury train through India. I went from Darjeeling to Bombay through, you know, Varanasi and Agra and Jaipur. And nothing to write about. I gave a talk on the train. That's mm-hmm. why. 
you know, I sang for my supper. In Dark Star Safari, the key to the book is the misery, the difficulty, the humiliation and risk of the trip. That was yeah. the whole point of it. Well, you write that by flying, you miss the misery and the splendor of the journey. Yes. Planes take you over the places that you should be walking through at the speed that a dog can trot. That's what you should be doing. And instead of flying over a border, you learn in Africa that if you take a bus to the border and you mm. get off and you get your passport stamped and you walk across no man's land yeah. and then you get your passport stamped again and then you look for a train or a bus on the other side, you know what a border is. You know what the countries are like. You're treated. You, know, you find out the, the hard way how people live. You know, there's all sorts of interesting desperation and riffraff as you approach borders, and you understand the differences between countries when you go through that sort of no-man's land. I, now that you mention that, I can think of many border crossings that are that way. How have border crossings changed in your experience in Africa in 40 years? They've become stricter. Countries have a, a sense of themselves, and they think, well, we're not like you, so <laughs> we're going to make life hard for you, or whatever. They, they think... You are either leaving this wonderful country or you're entering this wonderful country and it's going to cost you money. Also, you're a cockroach because <laughs> who could you possibly be? You get off a bus, hmm. you know, hmm. a man on the shady side of middle age like me gets off a bus at a border. Who on earth could you be? You're not George Clooney, mm -hmm. you know, you're not uh, Bono. You're a bum. You're, you're one you're, of the masses. But who are you? You're someone who is eavesdropping and seeing the texture of the society, understanding how people are treated, and you have something to write about. You find out what life is really like. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Paul Theroux. And in 2003, Paul wrote Dark Star Safari, Overland, from Cairo to Cape Town. Paul, you mentioned earlier how you are sort of anonymous. Nobody looks at you when you're wearing clothes you bought at a, at a thrift store and when you're on the shady side of middle age, whatever you call it. You wrote in your book, it's like you're a, a prince from Elizabethan drama that puts on a cloak and wanders anonymously into the marketplaces of his kingdom to find out what people really think. This is the great thing about the Peace Corps, the, the anonymity of it, uh, the humility of it. When you go as a celebrity to a place, you see nothing. When Bill Clinton comes back and starts telling me about India or the world about India or Africa, I don't believe him. Because he's, he goes as Bill Clinton on his red carpet and his helicopter and talks to the head of state and is shown the model school or the hospital or the, or the misery. He doesn't know. Hmm. He would be better actually putting on dark glasses, shaving his head, <laughs> wearing old clothes, and going not as Bill Clinton but as um, somebody else, Bill Smith, and finding out the way things are. Soldiers are the best judges of battle. The soldiers that came back from Afghanistan or, or Iraq or the Peace Corps volunteer that comes back, the anonymity of these people, the way they're at the sharp end of things and the things they see, that is the value of it. And the caliph, Harun al-Rashid, used to go around in Baghdad in disguise. And he went to the bazaars, Harun al-Rashid, in the ninth century and said, so what do you think of the government? What do you think of the price of <laughs> food. And people would tell him, I think, you know, the caliph is corrupt, or I think the caliph should do this. And he went back, and th that was a customary practice, to go in disguise. That reminds me, I've been thinking lately that the travel writer is sort of the modern-day medieval jester. Do you have any thoughts on that? In some respects, yes, but in another respect, they're, they're like medieval pilgrims more than jesters. I mean, the they, jester's job was to go out into the barrio and learn what was going on outside of the walls, wasn't it? And then he'd come back in and tell the king the truth. Yes, but the jester is a tease, too. He would tell the truth by teasing. That's true. To that extent, it's true. But I, I, I see that the modern traveler is like the medieval pilgrim, right. at least the good travelers. Not, we're not talking about people who go to Cancun and lie on the beach. Not that there's anything wrong with that, go swimming. But I'm talking about the people who are going, you know, to in the eastern Ecuador and traveling through Brazil and through the Congo. There's some aspect of the pilgrimage in it. And I felt in Dark Star Safari that it was a pilgrimage. It was a long pilgrimage from Cairo to the middle of Central Africa to see my school and then to go onward to Zimbabwe and South Africa to Cape Town to see what, what was happening there. It was, I felt like a pilgrim. Now, you traveled on the ground across Africa. I'm just curious, when I say the word roadkill... What do you think? Well, roadkill in Africa is likely to be a, a human being rather than 
one of the difficulties, of course, is that you're traveling in places where there is no law or where there's risk. In northern Kenya, a lot of people fly into Sambu Lodge in northern Kenya, northern-ish Kenya, and they say, oh, we saw animals and so forth. If you go by road through southern Ethiopia into northern Kenya, it's lawless. There are bandits. There are Somali bandits called Shifta. And the Shifta, they shot at the truck that I was in. And, and they, you know, that, that's not fun, being shot at a youth aiming a gun at you, which happens every now and then in Africa. is not an experience that I recommend to anyone, but it happened to me. So uh, roadkill, yeah, that's a problem. But I think that this sort of travel is not for the faint of heart. But it is, it, it's high-risk, high-reward activity. And there's and, majesty. I mean, describe for me a, a particularly memorable African sunset. The sunsets, of, it's as though you know, someone in Hollywood made it with CGI. Yeah, yeah, amazing. But it's also the unexpected. I mean, it's the majesty of looking out the window of a train and seeing an elephant, or being on, I was on the Zambezi River, and you, you see a riverbank full of crocodiles. Or you see, you know, success stories, people growing whatever they're growing and feeding themselves. And, you know, in the hinterland, not the capital cities, you see how people really live and how self-sufficient people in Africa can be. Not, they're not getting any help. All they have is a corrupt government and a lot of people, you know, driving past them or, or ignoring them. If you fly low over Africa, you say you took a helicopter through Kenya or Tanzania, you would see remote villages with no roads to them. They're just in the middle of nowhere. And people are self-sufficient. They have animals, they're growing things, and no one really cares about them. No one's doing anything, but they don't really, they're not looking for help. You know, when you talk about border crossings and when you talk about towns with no roads in them, it's, it's resonating with me from my experiences in Latin America, in Asia, and in Africa, and it all is a matter of getting out of the cities and really getting out into the bush, isn't it? Very much so, because in most cases, uh, African cities, I think cities in general, are pretty nasty, but African cities are hellholes. They're like gigantic thinking villages. There's no glory to them at all. There are a few exceptions. Cape Town's very nice, and I can't think of another one. Cairo, <laughs> maybe Cairo. Uh, Khartoum's not too bad. Omdurman, quite okay. But, but in general, yes, leave the city. Get out of the city. Right. There are flights to Africa. People go on safaris. They don't even go to Nairobi. They fly into Arusha or into you know, the hinterland to start the safari. They just overfly because you know, one of the largest slums in Africa is in Nairobi. Yeah. Uh, Lagos is no, you know, that's no picture. I mean, these are incredible megacity nightmares, aren't they? You mentioned getting out of the cities, and then, of course, if you didn't meet people, you wouldn't have a lot to write about. And the highlight of all of your books is the people you meet. How do you discover the unusual in ordinary people? I think just talking to them and also not being particularly interesting yourself. If you present yourself as an interesting person, again, if you're a celebrity, you don't find anything out about people. People are just interested in you. You have to show a genuine interest in people. It helps to speak the language. The Peace Corps taught me Swahili and Chichewa. I speak Chichewa, I believe, fluently. I speak sort of kitchen Swahili, really, but uh, I can get by. In it. It speaking of their own language, being a friend, and I suppose being genuinely interested in them. And not, not saying, I'm going to change your life, just finding out how people live and not telling them how to live. Um, not giving them advice, just listening, just observing. I think that's the, you know, grin like a dog and wander aimlessly and listen. That's the secret of, of writing and tell the truth and see that you are not as interesting as they are. That's where travel writing arises from human contact and genuine human contact, not, not patronizing people. What's your agenda, Paul, through in your writing? I think just living my life and, uh, and easing the passage of time by looking at the world. I never found where I grew up very interesting. I was born in Medford, Massachusetts, and I wanted to leave, and I left. And I found everywhere more interesting than where I grew up, and every other family more interesting than my family. So my wish from an early age was to go away. I joined the Peace Corps, and that set me off on a lifetime of travel. And I found, you know, the world I discovered had a lot to offer me, and it helped me. I didn't know what the word transformation meant when I started to travel, but I found that it was a transformative experience. I didn't know that word when I started. I didn't even know the word travel. I just wanted to go away. But going away 
helped. So I say, to when, when people say, I'm not happy, I want to be a writer, the cure for a lot of ills is just leave home, just go away. Be yourself, go alone, and probably you'll find what you're looking for. Do you feel better or worse about humanity when you get out into the bush in Africa? I feel much better because I figure this is how the world once was. It's how people once lived. When you go to a, a market, the market in, in Africa is like a medieval market. There are jugglers, you know, snake charmers, whatever, people selling things, you know, boys flirting with girls. It's the world as it once was and still is in some places. I don't feel negative. I feel, I feel very depressed when I see... I, I traveled in the Pacific, and I went to a lot of islands which had no television and no DVDs then because I was traveling in the early 90s. But there was a great difference between the islands that fished, made canoes, and the islands that had videos, you know, watching Rambo or pornography or some stupid Hollywood movie. So I get depressed with the invasion of the, the corruption of people's values or people being told that, you know, their souls should be saved. You know, people going in and say, you're a sinner. You really need to repent. A perfectly happy individual worshipping a snake or a cow or the, worshipping the sun or the moon is told that um, he's worshipping the wrong thing. That, that kind of brings me down. Paul Theroux, we have all enjoyed a better understanding of our world through your passion for living life to its fullest by leaving home. Thanks very much, Rick. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. Special thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in New York and the BBC in London. You'll find many of the interviews from past editions of the show arranged by the countries we discuss. They're available as podcasts and as apps that you can download to your portable player or smartphone. Look for the Rick Steves Audio Europe link on the front page of our website at ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Grin like a dog and wander aimlessly and listen. That's the secret. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to Scandinavia, the Baltics, and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next Nordic adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.